Will you read with me the scripture, Malachi 3, 6 through 12? This morning we're going to do it a little bit differently. If you could watch the scripture on the bottom of the page, you'll see we'll come to a place where it's underlined and italicized. I will be silent at that point and allow you to join me in the reading of your of the God's word. And so if someone in the room or all of you together would just join me as we read in Malachi, starting in verse 6 of chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, or ch O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. In your tithes and contributions, you have cursed, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine in your fields shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I have a question uh, to sort of get us thinking as we get started this morning. And good morning. My name is Greg. I'm pastor uh, here at FBC, and we're glad to have you with us if uh, I haven't met you. Um, and here's the question. What is worship? What is worship? While you're thinking about that question, uh, the passage we're going to be at today in the scripture is Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And we're also going to take a field trip from there over to Matthew uh, chapter 6. So if you want to have your copy of the scripture out to follow along in the Bible as we work our way through this uh, passage, you can find your way to Malachi uh, chapter 6. So what is worship? Uh, maybe you would have answered this way. Well, worship is when I go to church. Well, that's kind of different nowadays, isn't it? Uh, seeing as how we're not able to make our way to one particular place where we gather around with people that we're familiar with and we're having to go to church in a way maybe that many of us aren't used to. Uh, so what is worship if it isn't driving to a particular building and uh, sitting in a particular seat and seeing particular people? Uh, worship, we might think of it this way. Worship is acknowledgement. Worship is a recognition. Uh, worship is celebration. Worship is directed toward someone or something and acknowledges uh, that person or that thing and recognizes uh, the, uh, the nature of that thing. So we, we worship God when we think of who he is and what he has done, and we recognize that when we acknowledge who God is. Worship is celebration. Worship is a response. Worship is when uh, we see one thing happen and we respond in a particular way. Uh, we might be familiar with this sort of response thing. If, if you're driving down the road and you need to turn in and the driver uh, in front of you lets you go in, they wave you through. Go ahead, go ahead and go on in. As you're making the turn, you're going to wave back at them as a way of recognizing what they did. Uh, and that's one of the ways worship works, is it's a response to something. Uh, worship is cheer. Worship is uh, recognition when something good has happened and uh, expressing cheer and happiness because something good has happened as, uh, and, and acknowledging the source of uh, that good thing. 
worship, on the one hand, uh, is planned. That is, we uh, think about it, we say, well, we ought to worship. But on the other hand, worship is spontaneous. And uh, how can something be both spontaneous and planned? We'll think of it this way. as uh, You might think about going to see uh, your favorite football team uh, play. Maybe you uh, drive up to Eugene to watch the Oregon Ducks play, and, and something good happens on the field, and, and the, the Ducks score a touchdown, and you spontaneously jump from your seat and you cheer. And you're, you're getting loud, and everybody else is getting loud. And you'd say, well, see, that was a spontaneous response to something occurring. But then you think about it, you say, well, no, it really wasn't spontaneous, was it? Because you had to buy the tickets at a certain point, and you had to take the day off of work to make your way up to Eugene, and you had to buy gas for the car, and you had to make sure you made your way to the seat on, on time. So on the one hand, it was spontaneous in the moment. On the other hand, it was very disciplined and planned. You made intention to go there, and you planned on getting to the game. And when you got to the game, you were hoping something would happen that you could respond to by jumping up out of your chair uh, and getting loud. And so what is worship? Worship is all these things. Worship is being moved to celebrate. Worship is being moved to celebrate out of a sense of fondness or out of a sense of affection for who God is and what God has done. And so uh, to worship God, you have to love God. Uh, but we have to understand this about loving God. Uh, loving God is, is sort of a, a way we think about God in, in terms of theology. You say, do you love God? And you say, well, yeah, of course. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But as I heard once quoted from uh, somebody about marriage, they said, uh, I love my wife, but sometimes I don't know if I like her that much. And, and, and this is what happens with God. We love God. We say, well, he died on the cross for me and he's provided everything I ever needed. Well, but do you like the guy? Do you have a sense of fondness and a sense of affection for God? Do you have a sense in your heart of being moved by what he has done to, to warm your heart, to reach out to him and, and to celebrate him and to cheer him and to acknowledge him? Maybe another way of asking this, and you, I don't mean to offend you, but in your own heart and how you think about God, is God likable? Is God a good guy? If you had uh, the choice between hanging out with God on the weekend or, or your friends, would you say, well, my friends are more fun? And here's the, the point we're going to make, and here's what the title of our message is for today. To worship God, you must like Him. To worship God, you have to like Him. And all we're going to do this morning is very, very simple, just looking at two or three different ways that, that I might suggest from the Scripture that God is likable. And in fact, he is worth loving. And because he is such a good God, we can respond to him with fondness and respond to him with worship that comes from our, comes from our heart, whether we're gathered in a room at a church building or whether or not we're gathered around a little uh, iPhone screen or a television screen in our living room. Worship is a question of how am I responding to who God is and what he has done and really get, getting at the root of it is do I like him? To worship God, you must like him. So the first thing we must learn about God to really have our affection devoted to him is this. Uh, to worship God, you must like him and pay attention to one thing in particular about God that is, that is really amazing, God's persistent grace. God's persistent grace. So let me tell you a little story about a kid. Uh, a kid uh, is talking to his dad and his dad is just ready to get, go off to work and the kid has his plans for the day. He's going to play some video games. He's going to 
He's going to go outside and run around a little bit. And maybe later on, uh, uh, you know, text his friends and all kinds of things. And his dad says, listen, no, I got your morning lined out for you. There's a list of chores on the fridge. And those are going to be done. I'm going to call in at noon and make sure you're, uh, you're done with those. And the kid is furious because he had his plans. He was lined out. He knew what his day was going to look like. And his dad had the gall to intervene and ruin his whole day by giving him a bunch of chores to do in the morning. So dad leaves, uh, goes, gets in his car, and heads off to work. And this kid is livid. He is just filled with rage. So he goes into his dad's study. And he finds his dad's printer sitting next to his desk. And he slides open the printer, a drawer that holds the paper. And in a rage, he takes out one sheet of paper and then gently closes the drawer. And then filled with all the rage he can muster, he crumples up that paper and throws it in the trash can. And with his rage extinguished, he leaves. Now, how angry, how upset, how costly is this going to be for his dad? Well, the fact is, when dad comes home, he may not even know that his son flew into this violent rage where he destroyed an entire sheet of paper. Well, see, this is the thing we have to recognize about God's grace, is we sin continually, and God's grace so far outstrips our sin that his grace surpasses any sin we could ever commit. Look at verse 6 of Malachi 3. Look what it says. For I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. God is referring to his unchanging nature. Therefore, you, children of Jacob, that is Israel, therefore, you are not consumed. God says, listen, I do not change. Because my nature does not change, you are not consumed, meaning the punishment for your sin does not destroy you. And look what God, how God describes himself in verse 7 of Malachi 3. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. He says, listen, Israel, you have been sinning from the days of your beginnings. From the very beginning, you have been sinning. Every day since then, you have been sinning. And your sin continues. But because of my unchanging nature, you are not consumed. Pay attention to what he says. Return to me and I will return to you. That is God's grace. His very nature is a nature of grace which says, return to me and I will return to you. We might say it this way as a way of remembering it. God is better at grace than you are at sinning. God is better at being gracious than you are at being rebellious. You think if there was a competition between God's grace and your sin that you could maybe come in a close second. If not, maybe you could out his grace. And the fact is this. Remember the kid who crumpled up that paper. The worst of your sins for God is no bigger than that crumpled up paper. He is better at grace than you are at sinning. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands, worried to death that you might just do that one sin one more time and be the first person in all of history to be able to outsin his grace. That is not a concern because his nature is unchanging. He is better at being gracious than you are at being rebellious. And he says this over and over and over again, return to me and I will return to you. You must worship God. To worship God, you have to like him. And one of the things we can really love about God is God's persistent, never ending, I might even say stubborn grace. God does not change. 
God does not change in the way that he extends grace, in the way he extends mercy. He continually, over and over and over again, lovingly and graciously receives those who return to him. Now, how do we know how far God is willing to go in extending grace to us? How far is God willing to go to demonstrate his love for us? And how far he is willing to go is described most accurately by the cross. The cross is how far God is willing to go to extend grace to sinners. If you wanted to rebel against God, all you've got is your sin. But when God wants to extend grace to you, he extends the cross to you. You don't uh, compete with God's grace. The cross is where Jesus went to die to pay the penalty for all of our rebellion, all of our sin, to bear on himself the punishment we should have received for our rebellion. And God offers us the cross. God offers the payment for our sin merely because that is what he is like. He is gracious and he is merciful. And the best way of describing his grace is Jesus dying on the cross for you and me. The cross was expensive. It cost Jesus his life. The cross cost Jesus his life. But Jesus can't stay dead because Jesus is God. So Jesus is raised from the dead. God can afford your sin. God can more than afford your sin. It wasn't even a close contest. It's not like you almost outsend his grace. It's not like humankind nearly undid God's plan of redemption. God's grace, as expressed on the cross, so far outstrips any rebellion we could ever imagine. We should be overwhelmed by the fact that God is gracious over and over and over again. Somebody once said about parenting children, how do you have patience with children? And they said this, you don't really have to have patience with kids. You just need to have five more seconds of patience than they have stubbornness. You just have to be a little bit more patient than they are disobedient. So we just have to beat them by a little bit in being patient with kids. And as parents, we all know uh, that doesn't always happen. And we say this, is that what God did? Was he just five seconds more gracious than our sin? Was it just almost there? Like we, one more sin this week and you would, and God would say, well, I got nothing for you. I'm broke. I'm all out. That's not it. God's grace out surpasses your sin and them some. Pay attention. He says, from the very beginning, verse 7 of Malachi 3, the fathers have turned aside from my statutes. So think about this way. I just want you to evaluate your Christian life a little bit here as you think about it. Certainly your Christian life has been like uh, everybody else's Christian life, right? Where you got saved and you never sinned again. Well, certainly you sinned again, but even the sins you sinned as a Christian were mostly good things right? Is that your Christian life? Absolutely not. You, you, you get saved and then a few years go by and you say, what's going on? And some days are better than others. And some days are much worse than others. And then other seasons, there are seasons you go through, you say, why can't I shake this persistent rebellion? And from the beginning till now, our hearts are challenged with our sin nature. I mean, isn't it? Some days we sin. Some days maybe we say no to sin, but we want it so bad in our heart, we may as well do it, Right? Others days we do the right thing, but our motivations are so sideways that there's no way to consider it good. The fact is we have been sinning from the beginning and God's grace is poured out to us over and over and over again. 
And the Bible makes quite clear, when we come to God and seek His grace, what does He do? He extends it. And He said, there's more where that came from. We can worship God because we like God. Our affections can be, excuse me, warmed toward God because of God's persistent grace. Return to God. He will return to you. Look at the last sentence of verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And it's phrased kind of like a question. We have to understand this question is a little bit bigger than a to-do list. They're not saying, God, how do we do that? What does repentance look like? How do we return to you? The, the connotation of this question is a little bit more underhanded than is made clear by uh, just that question on its own. What they're really asking, God is coming to them and saying, return to me and I will return to you. And they're saying it basically this way. Well, how would we return to you, God? We never left. God, maybe you should take, uh, uh, take stock here of who left whom. God, we don't need to do the returning. You need to do the returning. So the question here is how do we return is there's a little bit of cynicism, a little bit of questioning God's goodness here and saying, God, I don't have anything to repent of. I haven't done anything that bad. God, in fact, it's a little bit offensive that you think I should own my sin. I don't think my sin is that bad, and you need to get off your high horse. You need to get over yourself, God. And, and this reveals a little bit something about how we experience God's grace. We experience God's grace most profoundly when the, by, the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're most honest with our need of grace. Remember Jesus, there was a, uh, a time in Jesus' life and he was eating dinner at a Pharisee's house and the, the Pharisee was really upset because while Jesus was laying there, a woman, a woman who was a prostitute, uh, was putting perfume on him and she was weeping and she was her tears were falling on his feet and she was wiping and cleaning his feet with her hair. And, and the Pharisee was deeply offended at this. This is very scandalous that Jesus would allow this woman to do this. And Jesus made this point. Uh, Simon, why is she doing this? He who has been forgiven of much loves much. And what he was saying about the woman worshiping at his feet was this. She has been forgiven of much, and so therefore she loves much and she is worshiping. So Jesus was not saying the Pharisee had less to, to confess or repent. It's just the woman had a greater awareness of her need. And the one who understands their sin the most understands God's grace the most. And the one who has experienced God's grace the most has their affection and their love warm towards God and worship Him. One of the obstacles to worship is the fact that we think we're better than we actually are. One of the open doors to worship is having our heart moved by God's grace when we're willing to finally admit that we need to repent and turn to God for the attitudes of our hearts, the motivations of our hearts, and our sinful actions, even those that are hidden from others. God sees them, uh, God sees them all. So to worship God, you must like Him. And one of the ways we can be moved to like and uh, have affection for God is to recognize uh, His grace. Uh, God is better. Uh, God's grace is better for you than your sin. And in fact, we would say it this way. God is better at grace than you are at sin. God is better at forgiveness than you are at rebellion. 
And the question is, a God who is this gracious toward you, can you love him? Can your heart be moved toward God who would forgive you the way that God forgives you? To worship God, you must like him. And God has persistent grace. Praise the Lord for that. Let's continue on. Uh, God is gracious. We need to keep that in mind. But we also need to pay attention to something else about God. Uh, God is God. God is holy. God is exalted. God is holy other. He is not us. He is someone else. And he is above us. And God's holiness and his glory and him being exalted does not uh, cancel out his grace. God doesn't have a good side and a bad side. On the one side, he's good. And on the bad side, he's he's God. His holiness and him being exalted is a function of his grace. And we should recognize this. So one of the other ways we should uh, worship God is this, is to recognize God is exalted in his holiness. To worship God, you must like him. And one of the other things we can love about God is he is exalted in his holiness. Now, in sporting circles nowadays, one of the things people love to talk about is the GOAT. Uh, I presume you know what the GOAT is. It stands for the greatest of all time. And so you might say, who's the greatest athlete of all time? Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Who's the greatest uh, uh, quarterback of all time? Who's the greatest wide receiver of all time? You can go through and we talk about who is the greatest of all time. Why are we so captivated with figuring that out? At the end of the day, who cares, right? Either way, sports aren't on at all right now. We've got to watch underwater basket weaving or whatever they have on ESPN The Ocho. But right now, uh, we, we talk about who's the greatest basketball player. Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? Uh, who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Is it Joe Montana or is it Tom Brady? Uh, who is the greatest wide receiver? Obviously, it's uh, uh, Steve Largem. There's no discussion there needs to be had, right? So who's the greatest of all time? And we love this. And the, the question is, I would say to this is this. Why do we care? Why do we want to know who is the greatest of all time? And I might suggest this. Is it reveals something true about our nature as humans. Is we like to know that there is somebody who is exalted. We like to know there is somebody up there who has made it. And in fact, we kind of like to be able to identify with somebody who is in the upper stratosphere. There is something moving about that, to know somebody who is in the elite class and say, that's my person, that's my, uh, who I cheer for, that's who I'm connected with. There is something built into us as humans that I would suggest is hardwired in us to put God in that place, but in the absence of God, we'll stick anybody up there that we can fill the gap in. And to worship God, one of the fundamental things we can do is recognize we like and enjoy looking up to somebody, and God is intended to be the ultimate somebody for that spot. So we we should recognize God is near, God is close, God is intimate, God is gracious and loving, and he is right next to us by the grace of God shown through Christ on the cross. However, God is not our peer. He is God, the holy and exalted God above all else. There is no name above his name. There is no Lord who is higher than Christ. He is holy other and ought to be looked up to in his exalted holiness. Okay, another uh, example here, and we'll switch gears off of sports here. Some of you are fans of Chip and Joanna Gaines. They've got a television show, or at least used to, uh, called The Fixer Upper. So what these folks do is they go and they identify a house, and usually it's the cruddiest house on the block, and they spend like 25 cents and uh, and some traded-in bottles, and they turn the house into a half-a-million-dollar house. It's something like that. I haven't seen the show a lot, uh, but my understanding is they are so good at what they do, they can take something that's essentially worthless and told it, turn it into a really 
Uh, nice looking home. So their skills are obviously in building and carpentry and then Joanna as the interior designer. And they could just take this home and an eye for detail and just dial that thing in. Boom. It's just awesome. Now, what if, uh, especially for those of you who are fans of uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, what if I told you uh, they're on their way over to your house? They're going to be there in like 20 minutes. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, I know. I just, I saw their schedule. They're swinging by your place. Right now, if you knew that was true, what would you be doing? First of all, you would be turning this off, probably, and you would quickly be cleaning your home and organizing it. You'd be grabbing paintings out of your garage you haven't hung up for two decades trying to find places to put them on the wall because they're going to come over and you know there's no way for Chip and Joanna Gaines to walk into a house and not give it a once-over, right? They're going to give that a once-over and you want them to have a sense, oh, you have an eye for detail, you have an eye for design, you're out mowing the lawn, you're throwing sod down, you're trying to get everything dialed in. Why would we do that? Why would we do that if somebody we respected is coming over to our house? Why would we clean the house and get it all dialed in? And the fact is because we look up to them and we want our life to somehow fit in with what we know they're up to. And that's what worship is. Worship is us looking at the Lord and saying, wow, that is incredible who God is and he is coming over and he is making himself near. What can I do out of an expression of gratitude and love to make my life look the way he looks? What, what happens in my home when God shows up? What, what does that look like? What would I do then? Well, let's look at verse 8 uh, through 12 of Malachi 3. I'm going to read it again. How will you return to me, he says in verse 7. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you would say this, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring in the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, God says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Test me if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field will not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So what he says is this, I have called you as my people and so therefore how do you worship me? And and the thing is they knew exactly how God liked to be worshipped because he outlined it in a high level of detail in the law of Moses. And God says, here is how my people are to worship me. And he gave them the law of Moses. They were to set up a tabernacle and there were to be priests who were to be in their tabernacle to serve as representatives for the people. And the people were to participate in the worship at the tabernacle in a number of ways. They were to bring sacrifices in to recognize their need for forgiveness. They were to bring offerings in to provide for the service of the tabernacle so the priests and the Levites would have something to eat. They were to bring offerings in. Sometimes they would bring offerings in. Part of it would go into the tabernacle. The other part, they would take out to their temporary shelter and they would set it up with friends and family and they would have a feast. And they would worship God by having a big buffet and they would eat together. And they would worship the Lord by eating together and also participating in the tabernacle. They would worship God by recognizing who God is and what he was up to. And for the people of Israel, it was very clear. What is God up to? 
seeking to communicate his redemptive plan through the work of the tabernacle. And God wasn't playing around. He didn't say, you can worship me at the tabernacle or kind of any old way you want. He was saying, no, to worship me, you must worship me in the way I have prescribed. And he was very particular about it. And we say, well, why was God so particular about it? Why was he so finicky? And the reason is this, is because the worship at the tabernacle was intended to represent and make clear the people needed a more permanent redeemer. As it says in the New Testament, the blood of sheep and goats could not wash away sin. Another redeemer would need to come who could permanently handle our sin problem. And that redeemer is Jesus Christ, the son of God. So the tabernacle is intended to make people think we need a redeemer. And we know that redeemer is Jesus Christ, the son of God. So since the tabernacle makes us think of Jesus, it makes perfect sense that God is not willing to compromise on something that sheds light on the work of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. He took the tabernacle so serious because he takes Jesus serious because Jesus is our redeemer, the son of God. And so the people were to worship God in the way God had called them to worship. Seek God the way God had told them. Worship God on his terms by following the temple law. And so the the temple rules had all kinds of rules. They were to bring in a certain amount of grain each year and a certain amount of money each year. And they were to provide certain kinds of sacrifices for the Levites who were in the temple. That was the way in which they lived. The, The offerings were given. Some of them were burned up, but much of the offerings were given so the priests would have something to eat because the priests were not given a land inheritance the way the rest of Israel was. And so the people worshiped God. God provided for his temple service as a way of communicating Jesus is coming. And he he is saying to his people, you have to worship me in my way. And the people had long since abandoned God's temple. They were worshiping God on every high hill. They had set up their own altars. And most of their altars were altars designed to bring them delight and pleasure in their own flesh through eating and drinking and sexual promiscuity. And so what they said is, God, your way is a pain. We're going to set up uh, another way of worshiping, which is everything we've ever wanted. And so instead of worshiping God, essentially they were worshiping themselves. And God is saying, "Uh, my grace is extended to you, but you have to return to me and recognize I am exalted in my holiness. God does not compromise. And we can look to God exalted in his holiness and say, wow, I want to be with him. Well, how is it that I relate to God who is exalted? It is through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we worship God for who he is, not for who we want him to be. And so this is how they worshiped him. And this had started from the very beginning. They worshiped him, especially with their stuff. Remember the history of Israel. They were in Egypt and God freed them from Egypt and they were wandering around in the wilderness. And we need to recognize something important about them being in the wilderness because it helps us understand how we worship God with our stuff, which is what God is talking about here. God uh, decided to provide food for them and the way that food was given to them was manna. Every morning manna would be on the floor of the wilderness and they would go out and collect the manna. They were only allowed to collect enough manna for that day. They would eat through that manna. If they kept it overnight, it would spoil and it would be rotten in the morning. So they only got enough manna for each day except for day six. On day six, they could collect two days worth of manna 
because on the first day of the week, they were intended to take a, I should say on the seventh day of the week, they were intended to take a Sabbath rest. So God got upset with the people of Israel for disobeying him in two ways for the manna, and one of them in particular made him most upset. First way they disobeyed him with the manna is they collected more than they needed so that they could be sure the next day they would have food. And that really bothered God, and their tents were filled with the foul odor of spoiled manna. However, the other way they disobeyed God was actually upset him more so. And what was that? On the sixth day of the week, they collected twice as much manna. They had it stored in their, uh, in their tents. And on the next day, they were intended to rest. But what did they do? The Bible says they went outside their tents to collect more manna, but they got out there and there wasn't any. But the Bible says God went to Moses and said, how long am I going to put up with them? The only job they have for today is to do nothing. Their one job today is to sit around and do nothing and eat the manna they collected yesterday. But because their hearts are so hard and don't want to recognize I am exalted above them and I am the one who provides for their every need, they refuse to rest in me. It's a long story told over time that is true of every one of us. We would rather rest in our own good effort than rest in God. But because God is exalted in, our, in his holiness, he is saying, if you are to have rest, you will have rest in me and me alone. Because that's how we were designed from the very beginning. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God gave them the Garden of Eden and everything was good and every fruit tree was good to eat. And God said, here you go. The whole thing is yours. Enjoy. But, you know, just don't eat from that one tree. And they decided they would rather take rest in the knowledge of good and evil from that one tree than take rest in God. And that's exactly what happens with stuff. God says, worship me with your stuff by recognizing your rest doesn't come from your stuff, your money, your house, your car, your job, whatever. Instead, recognize your rest comes from me. Pull the stuff off the exalted shelf and put it where it should go, which is stuff God has given for which we should be uh, should have thankfulness, and instead put God up in his spot, which is exalted holiness, and say, I can have rest today because God has given and God will give uh, tomorrow the way he always does. God is better than our stuff, and so therefore, since we know we have God, we can be generous with our stuff. So what does it say? He says this, will you rob me? Yet you are robbing me by saying, uh, by holding back your generosity. He's saying, listen, your money should be used in part for your needs and in part to care for the needs of others and in part to see the ministry of God continue in the world today. And this is true even for us today. Our money should be used to continue the ministry of the gospel. And God would say to each one of us, what part from all of the things I have given you has been set aside for the ministry of the gospel in your local church. And yes, I would say fundamentally the primary place we should support the ministry of the gospel is our local church. And if God continues to give, then we also support other ministries that, that do the work of the gospel. And we have open hands to also be generous to others who have needs. And then we recognize everything else that we haven't given away is still God's and we worship him even with the stuff that we use for our own needs and for the needs of our of family. So it's not just about giving uh, to the church. It's about understanding 
Whose stuff is it? Everything we have, God has given to us. And now he is simply saying, taking all the things God has given us, how can we worship him recognizing he is exalted? Our stuff is not exalted. Have you ever been looking at your notes and have no idea where you are? And that's exactly where I am today. So if you have a copy of my notes, you could email them to me and I'll look them up and figure out where I am. I, actually, I'm just kidding. kidding. So we worship God by recognizing he is exalted. Look what he says in uh, verse 10. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now we would say, but the God said, but the Bible says, don't test God. Don't challenge him. Well, what he is saying is here is this. Recognize me in your worship and see if I will continue to give you rest the way I always do. The way the people of Israel should have tested God in the wilderness is this. On the day of Sabbath is to test God and stay home and do nothing. To do nothing on the day of Sabbath and see if God would provide. And he says, I will provide. He says, put me to the test when you use your stuff that I have given you to worship me and see if I will not also make sure you have all you need. And this is a, a, a story he's recalling back from a time in the people of Israel. The, uh, the capital of Israel was sound, surrounded by an army, and the city was under an extreme famine. And the prophet told the king, uh, uh, don't worry about it. Tomorrow, the city will have all the food that it could possibly need. And the general who was listening to this says, listen, if you opened up the windows of heaven, there would not be enough food to provide for this city. And the prophet said to that general, you will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat of it. In the middle of the night, that great army that was surrounding the city was thrown into confusion by God himself, and they fled their encampment. A few lepers decided to go look at what was going on in the camp, and they discovered the enemy army had fled. They went and told the city the good news. God has driven the enemy away, and all of their stuff is still sitting out there. The whole city went out and plundered the enemy's camp. And that day, as God had said, they had more than enough. And that general saw it with his own eyes, but because of the stampede of people making their way to the camp, he was trampled and killed. And this is what God is saying to us. If we are willing to worship God with our stuff, he says, test and see that I will not provide uh, also. Worship God, you must like him, and we must recognize that God is exalted uh, in his uh, holiness. Okay, so what are the two things we've covered so far? God is persistent in his grace, and God is exalted uh, in his holiness. But we, we might think of something like this. There's been a lot of people who have been really successful business people uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we hear later on, especially their reputation was such that they said, boy, yeah, that guy was really successful, but he was a real pain to be around. And maybe we would say that. Is, is God just a really good God, highly and exalted, but, but is he kind of a pain to be around? Well, let's look at that in a little more detail over in Matthew chapter 6. So why don't you flip in your Bible over to Matthew uh, chapter 6. It's actually probably not that far. Malachi is just before Matthew, so it's probably just a few pages. And look at Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 25. I'm going to read verse 25 through verse 33. And this is a passage you're real familiar with, uh, but let's read it nonetheless. Uh, therefore, I tell you, and this is Jesus uh, preaching Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither snow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we eat? Or uh, drink? Or what shall we wear? Uh, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. To worship God, you must recognize his persistent grace, see that he is exalted in holiness, and finally, we can like him and love him because of his tender care. To worship God, we must like him, and we must recognize one of God's characteristics is his tender care. This passage talks a lot about eating and drinking. We think about two kinds of uh, meals. Think about this. You, maybe you would have a Marine who's going into the mess hall, and he's getting his food, especially if he's in a combat zone. Uh, now, while the military is very concerned about making sure uh, their Marines are well-fed, they're not necessarily overly concerned about whether or not they enjoy that meal on a day-in and day-out basis. It might be said, hey, listen, you got your three square meals a day. Uh, you can imagine a soldier, especially in a combat zone, going up uh, to the, uh, the, the cook and saying, you know, I really think you could have got a little bit different seasoning on uh, this brown stuff on this platter. I'm not sure what it is, and I'm not sure if the temperature was quite right. I think you're close, but you're not quite there. What would the cook say to that Marine out in the combat zone? Suck it up, buttercup. Eat your food. No one cares whether you like it or not. Now, so there's one meal, okay? Now think of another meal. You've got a young man. He's really interested in this young woman, and they've been dating for a little while, and he's told her, listen, I want to make you dinner. And so he knows what she likes to eat, and so he goes and he prepares just the meal she wants to eat, and she comes over, and he's got the table laid out with a tablecloth that's her favorite color, and he's lit some candles, and he puts the food there in front of her, and he serves his own food. And as she's lifting that, that fork to her mouth and takes a bite, what do you think he's doing? He's staring at her, isn't he? He wants to know what? What does he want to know? Does she like it? He's so, what if she doesn't like it? What if she, what if she spits it out of her mouth and stomps on it and storms out of the apartment? Probably not going to happen, right? But he's so concerned about everything. I want, he wants to make sure that it's precisely what uh, she had needed and what she wanted. And what we have to understand about the Lord from Matthew chapter 6 is that is the picture that is being pictured of him in this picture. He is not merely giving us food to make sure that we have enough vital nutrients to make it through another day. The Bible is making quite clear he is deeply concerned about all of our needs, about the food we eat and the, the, the beverages we drink and about the clothes we wear. He is not a dispassionate provider doling out food rations to his people. He is aware of what we need. And in fact, we might even say this. He is well aware when he gives us exactly what we need, and we have a different perspective on what ought to be needed. 
He is well aware when he gives us something and we say, uh, thanks God for that, but that's not what I need. He is well aware when we're battling with that in our hearts. He is not dispassionate and removed saying, eat your food and shut up. He is saying, I care for you. I am, he is a, a tender provider knowing what is going on in the recesses of our heart, providing for us precisely what we need and in fact hoping and seeking that in that provision we might turn to him in gentleness and love say god you are a great god who provides for all that is needed first thing to pay attention to in matthew chapter 6 look in uh, verse 25 is not life more than food and the body more than clothing how would that be possible if you don't eat you die right if you're not dressed you're naked and ashamed and cold how could the body be more than food and the body be more than clothing? How could life be more than food and the body be more than clothing? That could only be the case if life is more than this life. That could only be the case if there is more to life than today. That is the case if in Christ we have found hope. We know our life lasts forever. And so therefore, what I truly need is not based mostly on what this moment holds, what I truly need is what I know eternity holds. And God is saying the first thing we have to recognize in his tender care for us is that our life is more than the physical needs we need today. We are, God knows this. And God puts so much value on who we are, not who we are this short lifespan, but who we are forever with him, that he will tenderly give us everything we need. Uh, a way we can understand this is if we could sit back, and one day we're going to be able to do this, we're going to be able to sit back and look at our whole life from the beginning until all of eternity when we're present with God. You can choose any particular day of your existence on this earth and you will say to God, are you, ser are you serious, God? You were so generous. Now, from where we sit today, we're sitting here in this moment and the economy is shut down and people are getting sick and we wonder if everything's going to work out. We're saying, are you serious, God? This is the plan? I got about a dozen plans that are better than this plan. However, when we get to heaven's shores and can look back at everything God has been doing, our perspective will change. And Matthew 6, when we're filled with the faith of God, changes that perspective to now and we can say, God, are you serious? You have provided everything I have needed for this moment. Your generous and tender care is overwhelming and it requires a heart of faith uh, empowered by the Spirit to do that. So the key point is this, God values us and the degree to which he values you informs how he is going to provide for you today. And you say, well, how do I know how much he values me? You look at the cross. He was willing to give up his own son to the cross that your sin might be paid for. That is how much he values you. He values you more than the sparrow. He values you more than the grass of the field. He values you so much, he would give his own son to pay for your sin. Since that is true, we can know because of what his value is for us, he will pour out his provision on us even today, even in this moment. And so all he's asking us to do at the end of Matthew chapter 6 is this. Set your heart, your hopes, your dreams, your anticipations on the very on the very best thing verse 33 seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all the other things that you need let god take care of those all he is saying is set your heart on the very best thing have high high value and taste and say 
you know, I'm not going to settle for second best. I'm only going to settle for the absolute best thing this universe has to offer. And his name is Jesus. And he is exalted and holy. And he is sitting next to the throne of the Father, making intercession for me today. God, you have provided well beyond what I deserve. Why is this an issue? Because our sin makes us worship stuff. Our sin makes us worship stuff. When we have lots of stuff, we worship stuff by saying, I've got all I need. God, welcome to the party, I guess. But God, I'm pretty much squared away. We, when we don't have enough stuff, we say, I would be okay if I had more stuff. So what sin does is it twists our heart. Instead of finding our rest and our provision in God alone, we look for it in our stuff. And all the Bible is trying to do is free us. Free us from the shackles of stuff that will never give us what God can give us. And finally say, you know what? Today has enough to worry about. Tomorrow's going to handle its own business. I'm going to rest in the Lord who lasts forever and trust that he will provide according to his generosity and his tender care. To worship God, you have to like him. God's persistent grace, God's exalted holiness, and God's tender care. Okay, just a couple of quick things by way of summary, and then we'll uh, close with a, a song. First thing, let's think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus has known everything you would ever do. He knows everything you will ever do, and he died on the cross anyway. He paid it all, and it didn't make him go broke. If it would have cost more to pay for your sin, God could have afforded it. Your sin has no game in comparison to the grace of God. God knew all you would ever do, all you ever will do. He still went to the cross, paid for your sin. God's persistent grace should move our hearts to worship him. Secondly, God is God. He hears and he knows and he knows exactly the situation we find ourselves in. But God is creator. God is sustainer. All of the stuff is his stuff. And we need to worship God and recognize he is exalted. Our stuff is not. We need to worship God and recognize he should hold the highest place in our life. Not the bank account, not the house, not the car, not the reputation. Finally, this God cares for you. God knows personally and deeply the concerns and cares of your heart, and he is personally and deeply involved in the cares and concerns of your heart. He gets it. He knows what you're going through, and in fact, he feels what you are going through, and we should understand this from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is warm towards you. Because he took all of your sin on the cross, God extends you his love and his grace, and his attitude towards you is warmth and love and mercy, and we can worship him as we receive it from him.